All right, good morning, church. And it is a beautiful day outside, and and this is my favorite time of year. We got the cool weather. It's football season. We get to feast this week. I love Thanksgiving. Um, I can tell you one thing that I am extremely thankful for is that we have so many families in this church, so many parents who are faithful in discipling their children. And just seeing the kids up here worshiping, praising the Lord um, is such an encouragement. And I'm just so thankful for for how God is working um, in and through the discipleship of of your your own children um, and through the, the ministry of whether it's the children's, middle school, high school, um, everything that God is doing to just raise up the next generation of, of faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Um, so we're going to be back in First Peter this morning. It's been a couple months since I've preached, but we're going to pick up where we left off. Um, most of you know... Um, I am the father of five children, four of which are, I feel like I'm echoing, am I echoing? Four of which are homeschooled, Um, and I can tell you that I am frequently made aware of just how much of my own schooling that I have forgotten. Um, Jen will ask me sometimes to help one of the kids with their math work, and uh, I was never very much of a math guy, but now 20 years removed from school, um, I would hope that somewhere deep in the recesses of my brain, that knowledge is there, but it's gone, y'all. I, I got nothing. Uh, I'm having to Google things like how to do long division um, or multiply fractions. Uh, but there are a few things that I still can remember from my days in school, um, in particular from biology class, um, I do remember something called metamorphosis. It's a word that you all know means to change form. And when we think about metamorphosis, while something like 75% of insects undergo this transformation, most of us probably think of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. That caterpillar is kind of grubby looking, kind of ugly, little worm-like thing, and it is changed and transformed into a beautiful and colorful butterfly. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those time-lapse videos that they have of things like this. Um, you haven't watched that, it's pretty amazing. You should go home and watch it. But imagine you do, and you go home and you, you hit the play button on that video, and as you watch, the caterpillar's skin begins to open up, and the chrysalis is revealed as it envelops the entire caterpillar, forming a hard, protective shell around its body, and a narrator in his pleasant British voice, says 
that the caterpillar will remain in this cocoon-like state for nearly two weeks. And then you continue to watch, and the chrysalis begins to open. The long-awaited moment has arrived. And slowly emerging out of the chrysalis comes that same grubby, little, ugly, worm-like caterpillar. you'd probably think something's wrong here. What did I just watch and why did I waste my time? And it would be completely disappointing and unremarkable. There was supposed to be a change. There was supposed to be a difference. In our passage today, I think that we'll see just how clear a picture this is for those of us who profess to be in Christ those of us who call God Father, if that's really true of us, there should be a difference. There should be a change. There should be a transformation of our lives. So before we get to our text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of your word. And as we do, that we would see and understand the incredible value of the glorious realities of who you are and the amazing kindness that you've shown us by revealing yourself to us. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would change us. That we would be transformed. That our lives would be different. And we pray that you would do all of this for our good and for your glory. Amen. It's been a couple months, but in my previous sermon, we looked at Uh, verses 1 through 12 of 1 Peter 1. And we beheld glorious truths, realities, and promises, such as the fact that like the original recipients of this letter, we are elect exiles. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen by our sovereign God unto salvation. And this was accomplished in the sanctification of the Spirit. God the Spirit set us apart from the world and made us holy, taking out our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh, and all for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, that is, to be purified we saw that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we're saved not only from sin and from the wrath of a holy God, but we are saved unto something, unto an inheritance that is imperishable because Jesus lives forever and undefiled because Jesus is holy and unfading Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, and you are being kept for it, because it is by God's power that you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We saw that these amazing truths and promises are what we rejoice in in the midst of life's trials and suffering. That because of these truths, we can trust that God always has a purpose and a plan in the pain and suffering of our lives. That purpose being a refined faith, a stronger faith, a more precious faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And it'll be a faith that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw that the trials, the pain, the suffering of life are ultimately for our joy. The joy of an assured faith. An assurance of our salvation. And we saw that the prophets of old and even the angels long to know and understand this grace that is ours. This salvation that is ours. But what does all this mean for our lives today? What are the implications of this? What effect should this have on us? Let's look at our passage for today. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 21. Excuse me. All right, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest In the last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The main point today is that God's purpose in our election and our exile is to make us holy in mind, heart, and action through the means of hope and fear. 
God's purpose in our election and our exile is to make us holy in mind, heart, and action through the means of hope and fear. Verse 13 begins with, therefore. And I'm sure most of you know, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, we know that the writer is connecting us um, with what he has previously stated to what he is about to say. Therefore here is pointing us back to all those gospel truths that we saw in verses 1 through 12. Those truths that we rejoice in as we experience the trials and suffering as exiles in this sinful world and in these sin-plagued bodies. We rejoice in our suffering because we know that it's producing in us an assurance of salvation by refining our faith. And this, therefore, is pointing us forward to what these truths demand of us. So Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a command here. And the command is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Which brings me to sub-point one, which is undivided hearts filled with true hope will be holy. See, we're commanded to hope. The way we usually speak about hope, we don't use that word in a way that portrays much confidence. We say things like, man, I really hope the Falcons win today. Or I really hope the weather forecast for next weekend is nice. Things that, if you've lived in the state of Georgia for any amount of time, you know you cannot put much confidence in at all. I'm sorry, I'm not a Falcons fan, so if that hurts, know that I'm a Dolphins fan, and I don't have all that much hope either. Although this year, this year's a little better, a little better. But that, that's not the kind of hope that Peter's talking about here. Biblical hope is full of confidence. An unshakable expectation in the thing that's promised. And he says to set your hope fully, completely, entirely, as in all your hope in God. We can't try to hedge our bets and have our hopes divided between God and His promises and the world and its promises. The entirety of your hope is to be set upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this grace? Well, we've talked about it a little bit already this morning. The grace that's to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ is the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us. It's kept in heaven for us by a risen Savior who is our living hope. 
It's the grace that's ordained in the divine foreknowledge of God the Father and enacted by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's the grace of our merciful God who will finish the work He began in you when He brought you to Himself. It's the grace of the gospel accomplished in your life and mine. When on the day we breathe our last, or He returns, we will be like Him, because we will see Him face to face. We will see Him through eyes undimmed by sin, in bodies unhindered, by weakness, with hearts full of rejoicing and mouths full of praise. That Christian is our hope. That is our treasure. Hope speaks of what is in our hearts. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We are commanded, though, to have hope-filled hearts. But we can't conjure this hope up in and of ourselves, within our hearts. The only thing our hearts can produce while we remain in these exiled, fallen bodies is sin. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts have to be changed and continually emptied of false and fleeting hopes and filled with genuine, living hope. And remember, Peter is writing to believers whom he calls exiles. And they are suffering under various trials. They are surrounded by people who hate God, like all people, apart from God's intervening work and regeneration, and redemption. All people hate the truth. And as Romans 1 says, they are ungodly and unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and have become futile in their thinking with their foolish hearts darkened. Notice there the reference to hearts and to thinking. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, our culture, just like the culture of that day, is filled with foolish, darkened hearts and minds of futility that have exchanged the truth, wisdom, and glory of God for its own truth, its own wisdom, its own glory. And as exiles living in the midst of a culture like this, We will experience suffering, being ostracized, mocked, ridiculed, hated, threatened, 
And as the culture goes deeper and deeper into its depravity, it may be that Christians in this country will eventually be arrested, beaten, and even killed for their faith. You only need to read the New Testament to see that this is the case. And that across 2,000 years of church history, Christians across the globe and across cultures have been persecuted. Even today, thousands of our brothers and sisters are undergoing severe persecution and martyrdom across the world. See, the temptation for us as Christian exiles in the midst of a culture like this is to capitulate, is to deny the truth and give ourselves over to false hopes. That is where our deceitful hearts are calling us to. We cannot allow our hearts to be seduced by the ease and comfort of tolerating and celebrating sin or to find peace and joy in the approval of men or to seek hope in false saviors like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Republicans or Democrats or in the countless number of false prophets gods, or philosophies of men. But how do we overcome the deceitfulness of our hearts? How can our hope be undivided and fully set on God? Brings us to point two, which is battle-ready and serious minds are the means to hope-filled hearts. Look back with me again at verse 13. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. The means of emptying our hearts of all the lies and deceit and sin and the means of setting our hope fully on the future grace that belongs to us is to prepare our minds for action. To be sober-minded. That first phrase, preparing your minds for action, is also translated, girding up the loins of your mind. It's a bit of a weird phrase. Really think of our minds as having loins. So what's he talking about here? The people living in that time would have worn long flowing garments, which are probably ideal for the climate that they lived in, but they were not ideal for doing any sort of strenuous work or for going into battle. So what they would do is they would tie their garments up in such a way that they wouldn't hinder them or get in the way as they worked and fought. So Peter says that this is what our minds must be like. Our minds need to be prepared for work. They need to be prepared to battle for our thinking. And he says to be sober-minded. 
We need to think soberly and seriously. This command to set our hope fully on future grace can only be accomplished by soberly, seriously preparing our minds to work and battle, to know and be conformed by and sanctified by the truth. That is the battle for our minds. To know the truth. Again, the first 12 verses of this letter are full of truths. Full of examples of God's faithfulness. To keep His word. His ability to fulfill His promises. Because He's sovereign. And will accomplish all His purposes. Christian, we must daily prepare our minds for the work and the battle of filling our minds and fueling our hearts with the truths of God's Word. In this life as Christian exiles, it's so easy to be distracted, to have our minds and our hearts divided among so many things. Worthless things. That would be true in any era era of history, but how much more in our era where we live in the wealthiest country on the earth and we carry around in our pockets devices that are designed to distract us. The world and our flesh is vying for our attention and our affections to be divided constantly. That is why the battle for holiness must be fought in our minds and in our hearts. We must fight constantly to have our thinking changed so that it is our minds would be singularly focused upon the truth so that our hearts would be fully devoted to the truth of the gospel and the faithfulness of God so that it would become our unshakable hope and expectation that no matter what life throws at us, the grace of God will be ours in the last day. The pursuit of truth with our minds and the treasuring up of these truths within our hearts isn't to be an occasional occupation when we have some downtime. It's instead to be the persistent, practiced, steady, and disciplined daily course of our lives. This work is our warfare. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12.2 writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We will be transformed. Our hearts will be transformed by renewing our minds daily. 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the means of God's Word. The whole idea that we are exiles could lead us to believe that we are alone in this battle. It's easy to feel outnumbered in the midst of a culture like ours. Feel like I'm the only one. But Christian, you are not alone. You have the spirit of the living God dwelling within you. And you have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are equipped to battle and work alongside you. To battle for our hearts and minds to be holy. This battle isn't meant to be fought alone. God has given us His church. And we wage war together every time we come together to sing, to pray, to sit under the teaching of His Word. We fight together as we disciple one another in small groups or in one-on-one studies, when we have meals together, we talk about the Lord, we talk about His Word, what He's doing in our lives. Christian, there are so many ways available to you to be involved in one another's lives, to be involved in this battle for one another. This church is so blessed with so many students of the word who would be happy to disciple you. Who would be happy to teach you how to study your Bible if you just don't know where to begin. Come now to sub-point three, which is that truth-filled minds and hope-filled hearts Produce holy lives of fearful obedience. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We see here another command in verses 14 and 15. First, we see it stated negatively in verse 14 as, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then positively in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Peter, reminding us of our true identity, commands us again as obedient children. That's who you are, child of God. As obedient children, to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but to be holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. And God is our Father. We are His children now. Your Father is holy, 
And as his child, you should want to be like him. You should want to be holy like your father. Any child who has a good and loving father wants to be like him. Holiness is defined as being set apart, distinct, other, different. And God as creator is set apart from all creation. He is exalted. He is infinite. He is infinitely righteous and just and loving and wise and pure and good. All the characteristics and attributes of God are infinitely perfect and good. And we, as obedient children, should desire to be like him and to please him. See, my kids root for the Atlanta Braves and the Miami Dolphins because I love the Braves and Dolphins. And they love me. And they want to love the things that I love. But I also hate the Phillies, and the Buffalo Bills. Looking at you, Dave. (laughs) So my kids, I mean, talk to Luke. Watch a game with Luke. He hates the Phillies and the Bills. They love the things I love, and they hate the things I hate because they love me. They want to be like me. And the love that we sometimes have for our teams and the hate for their opponents is passionate and zealous. This is what truly lies at the heart of obedience to God. Love for Him. Loving what He loves. And hating what He hates. That's what obedience flows from. That's what holiness looks like when it's lived out in our lives. A true holiness is not just external obedience to a set of rules. True holiness and obedience involves every facet of our being. It involves setting our mind on God who he is, what he's done. It involves our hearts as we treasure up the truths of God and set our hope fully on them and love them. And it involves our actions or our conduct, as verse 15 says. Said more simply, true holiness is obedience to the greatest commandment. To love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You might think to yourself, there's never been a single solitary moment of my life when I've perfectly loved God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. And you'd be right. You haven't. I haven't either. 
There's only one who has. Jesus Christ. And he did it every moment of every day without fail. And he did it for you and for me. And if your faith and your trust is in him alone, then all his righteousness is credited to your account. Not only that, but his spirit has sanctified you. And is sanctifying you. He has made you holy and he will continue to make you holy. Because, think about this just for a moment. The infinitely Holy Spirit of the all-powerful, all-wise, perfectly righteous and good God dwells within you. And He's with you every moment of every day. And He renews and enables and empowers you to be ever increasingly holy. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, God will make you holy. He will Bring your sanctification to completion. You will be like Him at the day of Jesus Christ. This is glorious. This is true. And this is our hope. Hear me, Christian. While your salvation is completely, entirely a work of God, God alone, your sanctification, your being continuously made holy, it's not automatic. You are the one who must strive to work by the means that God has given. And in the power that His Spirit supplies to increase you in holiness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But Christian, hear this. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So your salvation isn't your own doing. It's not of works. It's the gift of God. But Christian, you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that you should walk in them. You are a new creation. But you were created for holy conduct. And Christian, God prepared your good works beforehand. Your holy conduct beforehand. He will make you holy in all your conduct. And He will do this by His Spirit through the means of His holy word. Through the means 
of holy, truth-filled minds that fight and battle to know the truth of the word and treasure those truths in our hearts so that we will walk in faithful obedience and in holy conduct. See, so far, Peter has shown us that the command to hope in God and his faithfulness and promises is one means of motivation unto holy conduct. But now Peter will give us another motivation, another command, namely fear. As Brian has repeatedly spoken of our duty to fear God in in our Joshua study. We see that like any obedient child with a good father, we must have reverent fear for our father. Look with me at verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If God is our Father, we will love Him. And we will hope in Him. And because He has ransomed us from our futile ways, and He did so at great cost, immeasurable cost, we love Him. Because he first loved us. And his love for you was so great that he gave what was of supreme value to rescue you. What he gave was not merely silver or gold or anything of this earth which will perish. He purchased us from the slave market of sin with the precious blood of his own son. That Christian is unfathomable. It's amazing. The grace and love toward us that God has shown is amazing. And this is why we love him. But Christian, this is also why we must Fear him. Look again at verse 17. See, our Father, who paid such a great cost for us, he is the one who judges all people with impartiality according to their deeds. We must never approach God casually or irreverently. Yes, he is our Father. And we've been granted access to his throne of grace. But we must never be presumptuous as we approach him. 
He is holy. He is infinitely holy. He is perfectly good and righteous and just. And he sits enthroned as king and judge. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, reads this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Then we come to verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. See, we must approach him with a reverential fear. But know this, Christian. The Lord is good. He wants you to come to him. He wants to be your stronghold, your stronghold. He wants to be your refuge. See, fear of God for the Christian is not at odds with faith. It's not at odds with hope. It's not at odds with love. All these things, the faith, hope, and love that we have for God. See, godly godly fear displays wisdom and a right understanding and knowledge of who our holy God is. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge and of understanding. And when we truly begin to know and understand just who this supremely holy God is, namely the judge of all the earth who will by no means clear the guilty, then we will be all the more amazed at his mercy and his grace and his kindness that he has shown to us. See, the believer professes, possesses godly fear. He possesses wise, knowledgeable And understanding trust in Him. Hope in Him. And the one whose life perseveringly follows this course of faithfulness and obedience and holy conduct to the end will have the assurance that he truly is a child of God. Because he will reflect 
the image of his father. On the other hand, perhaps you profess Christ. You know the gospel. You grew up in church. You sat under the preaching of the word countless times. But you were walking in sin and rebellion. Perhaps it's difficult for you to identify any recognizable fruit in your life. Your time reading God's word is few and far between. And your love for him has grown cold. My friend, do you really want to trust in a faith like that? See, Hebrews 12, 12 through 14 says, Lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. And listen, Christian, And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's written to Christians. You must strive for holiness, Christian. You cannot continue to walk in disobedience. To walk far from God. You cannot continue to neglect the reading of His word. You cannot continue to pursue holy to to fail to pursue holiness and expect that somehow you will see the Lord. Genuine faith is a faith that works. Genuine, genuine faith is a faith that displays fruit. Do not trust in a fruitless, disobedient faith. You may find yourself on that day being numbered amongst those who will say, Lord, Lord. And he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. See, the most precious thing in the life of a Christian is the assurance that on that day, when we see him, that we won't hear those words, but we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. Friend, if your life shows no change, no metamorphosis, no sign of holiness, how can you be assured that you'll see him? Repent. Turn back to Christ. Trusting in him and his righteousness alone, set your hope fully on him, undivided. Fear him. Soberly, Prepare your mind to battle, to know him, to strive for holiness. Friend, read your Bible and pray that he would increase your love for him. 
This is the only means that the Spirit will use to make you holy. Or maybe you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. Your life is one of perpetual disobedience and rejection of God's grace. A life that displays the conduct of one who loves and finds satisfaction and hope in the world and all its fleeting pleasures and feigned wisdom. You have no love for God. You fear Him, but with an ungodly fear. An ungodly fear that causes you to run from Him. If that's you, then friend, you stand condemned before a holy God. And on the day that you stand before His judgment seat, your ungodly fear will only be magnified. It will be a fear and a dread that wants to flee from His holy gaze. You will vainly cry out for the mountains to come crashing down on you so that you might escape His wrath. You've been running from Him your entire life. My plea to you today is this. Do not harden your heart. Do not continue running from Him. But instead, repent. Turn from your sin and your idols, the things that you're trusting in for life and for hope, things that will only lead to death, things that are fleeting and empty. And turn to Christ. He is good. And He stands ready to forgive and to redeem you if you would only turn. If you would only trust in Him alone. Trust in His righteousness and not your own. Trust that He died in your place on the cross, absorbing the full wrath of a holy God for your sin. And believe that He rose victoriously from the grave. Defeating sin and death. Today, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you will have a new heart with new desires and affections and a right and godly fear. Let's consider the final two verses of our passage this morning. Verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We can never truly comprehend 
the immense value of what God gave up to ransom us from our futile ways. For your sake and for mine, for our election and our sanctification and our obedience, God chose His one and only Son to be made manifest in the flesh. The one for all of eternity past whom He loved. This is the one whom He sent to become one of us. So that He might fulfill the law on our behalf. And die in our place. But He raised Him up. And seated Him in glory at His right hand. All so that we would believe. All so that we would trust and hope in God. We must fear treating Christ, the one who is perfect and spotless and infinitely holy, righteous and good, the one whose precious blood was shed to ransom us. We must fear treating him as worthless, as nothing. We must fear treating God who gave his precious son, whom he chose before the foundation of the world to be manifest and to put on human flesh so that he might die for us and whom he raised from the dead and gave glory to by seating him at his right hand with all power and authority and honor as nothing and worthless. Christian, turn daily from the passions of your former ignorance. Refuse to embrace the false hopes of sin and worldly, worldly wisdom. And as you do, you honor your Father. You honor your Savior. Conduct yourself with fear and be holy. And as you do, you will display the supreme value of the price that was, that was paid to ransom you. You must do this. You must be holy. You must fear treating God and what He gave as nothing. You must do this because there's more at stake than just your own personal holiness. There's more at stake than just your own walk, your own relationship with the Lord. What's at stake, Christian, is the glory of God. Because you are an elect exile, and you live in the midst of an unbelieving world. And if you are living just like the world, what does that communicate to them about God? Why would they ever come to him in reverential fear or in hope of redemption if when they look at you, they see someone who's just like them? Someone unchanged. 
Someone who's following sinful passions and desires and worldly wisdom. Our lives must communicate that God is powerful to save. That He is a holy God. That He is a God who transforms lives. Transforms lives from darkness to light. From death to life. That He's someone to be feared. But He's also someone to be hoped in and loved and obeyed. And that, Christ, and that Christ's righteous life and his death on the cross is of real and supreme value. And that our God is the only one true and living God. The one who Peter himself once spoke to and said was the only one who has the words of life. Those are the only words that give us hope. Church, we must be set apart. We must be holy. Because our God is holy. Because the shed blood of our Savior is infinitely valuable and precious. And He alone is worthy of glory and honor and praise and worship and hope and fear. Christian, if God is your Father, then as obedient children, be holy. For He is holy. Amen.